guys are, wait, we got Isaac in person, we got this other guy up here we don't know. Yeah, they just, there wasn't a pastor tonight, so they pulled me off the street and said, do you want to preach tonight? <laughs> no, I'm, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Craig, I am one of the pastors here overseeing various ministries, and uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you this evening, it's an honor. Um, it has been a, a really fruitful few past weeks. For those of you who've been around, we had youth camp three weeks ago. 80 of our youth went up to Hume Lake, had a, a really a wonderful week. And then we had the Whosoever's Outreach, doing outreaches here in the church and in various skate parks around the county. That was super fruitful, really fun to, to be a part of that. And then the VBS this week, so cool to see all those kids in here every day, just uh, hearing God's word. Um, so needed, so necessary. And then we had a men's conference uh, this morning, which I was here for part of. I didn't attend the whole thing, but it was packed. There, was, there must have been at least 350, 400 guys here. So really good. And it's exciting to see, and it's exciting to be a part of a church that is doing the things the church should do, but also a place where Christians can find answers to the critical issues that we are facing in, in, the, in the day and age we live. Not all churches are like that. We're blessed that we can come to church and, and really find answers for the hard questions. So I'm proud to be a part of such a church. Um, we are going through the book of Acts in our daily reading. And today, I'm going to be sharing out of the book of Acts chapter 16. And so, as you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 16, let's go ahead and get started. And I'm going to pray. Father, what a blessing it is to be here this Saturday afternoon with my brothers and sisters who are here to hear your word, to fellowship, to pray, to worship you. Thank you, Lord, that we do find answers. I remember as Pastor Isaac was up here last week and he was just talking about the church, the Bible, has answers for the issues that we as Christians face day by day. And I'm thankful that we can come to you this evening knowing that you will speak to us through your word, Heavenly Father. And Lord, I just want to pray especially for those who have come in here with a heavy heart. I know that there are those in here. There's anxiety, there's uncertainty, there's fear, there's burden. And Lord, they need ministry. And I pray, Lord, that through the fellowship and the worship and the, and the teaching of your word that you will minister in the ways, Lord, that you know they need to be ministered to. And I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're here in Acts chapter 16. It is a wonderful chapter. I love this chapter. There's so many uh, sermons that could, be, that could be taught out of Acts chapter 16. It is really a chapter about the founding of the church in Philippi and all the events that took place in the founding. You know, Paul 
years later, after the events of this chapter, would be sitting in a Roman prison, and he would write to the Philippian church these words. He would say, therefore, my beloved, and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, Philippians 4.1. From the prison, Paul is encouraging the church. The Philippian church had a very special place in Paul's heart. And it became a special church, and certainly it is a special book in the Bible. Many of your favorite Bible quotations probably come from the book of Philippians. And the church itself exemplifies so many of the attributes, the fruits, that a church should be bearing. And yet, like so many of God's greatest works, it started in very unlikely, in a very humble, and to Paul, at great personal cost. You know, we say that hindsight is 2020. And when we read this story with that benefit, with the benefit of hindsight, we can't help but be awed, I am, at God's ability to turn the ordinary and even bad situations for his purposes. And certainly, if that's all we draw out of this passage, there is much encouragement that comes just from looking at that. But I'm sure that as Paul began that work in Philippi, and we'll see that today, he never imagined what the church would become. And, as, and there were so many times during the course of this work beginning that, it, that Paul, if he wasn't listening to the Spirit, he could, have, he could have muddled the good thing that God was about to do. He could easily have been misled. He could easily have become discouraged. He could have easily second-guessed or misinterpreted what God was doing or just gotten into his flesh and done his own thing and gotten off track. But somehow, Paul, by, by God's grace, and that's key, by God's grace, was able to keep hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and stay in the place of being able to be used, to be able to be that instrument of God. He was willing to give his full energy, his full zeal, his full effort, when the audience and the ministry was not what he expected it to be. He was able to discern truth and resist the temptation to compromise when that certainly seemed the logical choice and certainly was the easier way to go. He was able to persevere and not give up, even under heavy persecution. And lastly, he was able to see past the hardship, his own hardship, and see the unlikely opportunity that God had put in front of him. This passage, to me, illustrates how Paul 
was able to be a voice of grace. A voice of grace to this very pagan and initially unwelcoming and hostile city. A city in which a beautiful work of God would be started because Paul was in every sense of the word willing to be a voice of grace, to be that voice. And you know what? We too live, and we know this, we live in a hostile world, increasingly antagonistic to our belief system, our values, our morals. To us, it is becoming clear, if it is not already, there has been a shift, a shift away from traditional values, godly values, or more God-centric values, to a wholehearted embrace of a whole new set of values that are, that are man-centric, that are anti-God, that are in many ways evil. And we can't help, I'm sure you all have the same thought in your mind, we can't help but wonder as we watch the world charging recklessly down this path where the future is so unknown and, the, and it seems so very dark. And we know in our hearts that the answer is in here. We know in our hearts that the answer is Christ. And the message that the world needs to hear is the message that many, if not most, don't want to hear. But brothers and sisters, like Paul, we are called to be voices of grace. We're called to be voices of grace. And the question I have is how can we and ultimately will we answer that call and be the voice of grace that the world needs to hear? And this is the question that we're going to look at tonight as we study Acts chapter 16. But first, what is it to be a voice of grace? That might sound obscure to you. It might sound like merely to be a spokesperson is to be a voice of grace. And that might be a part of it. But turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Sorry, I asked you to turn to Acts 16. But right, the first thing we're going to do is go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 10. Paul is writing, obviously, to the Corinthian church. And he says, we then, as workers together with him, plead with you to receive the grace of God. Sorry, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As Paul is opening that chapter, he's speaking of, we see two things. We see, we see that he's speaking of the grace of God that is available and he says to them, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And, he, and then he says he's pleading with them. He is acting and making them aware of that grace. He's acting as a voice of grace to the Corinthian church. And he wants them to know of the sense of urgency. He says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. God's grace is available, but it may not always be. Today is the day that you are aware of it, and today is the day you need to accept it. And then he goes on from verse 3 to verse 10, saying, We give no offense in anything, that our ministry may not be blamed. 
But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and and yet well-known, as dying and yet we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul here is recounting, after he speaks of the grace of God, he's recounting the hardships and the trials he has endured in his life. Now, why is he doing that? Is he boasting? Is he trying to make people feel sorry for him? Is he trying to raise money? (laughs) I don't think so. No, I think what he's doing is he's pointing to the value of their lives. He's pointing to the value of the body of Christ in God's eyes. As we see the extent to which God, and not only God, but God's willing servants, in this case the Apostle Paul, as God's willing servants who have been compelled by the love of God have gone to reconcile these lost souls in Corinth back to himself. Paul says in in 5.14 of Corinthians, he says, for the love of Christ compels us. That was his motivation. And he says, in how many different ways have we shared the gospel with you? So Paul sees his suffering as another voice, not just one voice. All these efforts, these disciplines, the trials, the hardships, the sufferings, all of them are as a cacophony of voices testifying and affirming the grace of God. And that, that's why he reminds them of it, and that's why he can rejoice even in the sufferings that he has endured. All of these resources expended All of these efforts made, all of these trials endured, Paul says, I have gone through, they are simply a voice of the grace of God, speaking through me, testifying as to the value God has for your life, the love he embraces you with, the desire he has to save you from sin and to take you from darkness into light. We're reading those words from Paul to the Corinthian church, but I want you to take a moment and consider your own life. Consider, first of all, the grace of God in sending Jesus to earth for you. The Bible says we were all, we were yet sinners dead. While we were yet sinners dead in our trespass in sin, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything. We hadn't done anything to deserve anything of the goodness of God, anything of God's favor, and yet God did that for us first. Such was his love. And not only consider the testimony of the word of God, what Christ has done for you, but consider the chorus of voices, the voices of grace that surround Jesus' simple invitation to you in Scripture. The lives, the gifts, the sacrifices, the bravery that has been a part and that are a part of bringing you to Jesus. It makes me think about the cost and the value of a soul. 
And this was brought home to me one time in Africa. And we were doing a, an outreach. And we had a team from Calvary Chapel San Jose coming out. And there was a lot of people coming. And being a missionary, and you're always kind of living on a shoestring, you're very aware of the finances, and you're thinking about, wow, a team coming over for two weeks is costing about $50,000. I could probably build three or four churches for that amount of money. And, uh, but that, that's weighing on me, and we're organizing a, an outreach in this remote village. And we had prayed about it, but things just didn't go well. And I remember that day we get there and the screen that we were going to show the movie, uh, the Jesus film on, got lost somehow and we were running around at the last minute trying to find a bed sheet to show the, the movie on. And then the generator, didn't, which always worked, never didn't want to start. And then it rained. And then very few people turned up. And this team, which had spent all these resources and time preparing for this outreach, I felt must have been disappointed to see this very paltry little crowd that gathered to hear them. And I felt bad. And in the course of that crusade, one person, one young, probably teenage girl came to the Lord. And I immediately was thinking, wow, that was an expensive soul. <laughs> For a team spending forty dollars or $50,000 and all the effort... God must love her an awful lot. And certainly that was my thought. I was worried about money. But the Bible tells us that heaven was rejoicing. And it made me realize, you know, that those things don't matter to God. Our life is valuable. Your life is valuable. And so... Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, and as we go back into Acts chapter 16, I want us to look at how was, able, how was Paul able to be such an effective voice of grace and carry that into our own lives, and how can we be an effective voice of grace, understanding the full context of what a voice of grace is. So going back to Acts chapter 16, which is where we'll be for the rest of the time, the first thing we see is Paul's ability to discern and be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I would say this is probably the most important thing because this carries through this whole, the whole narrative. His ability to discern and be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, it tells us that after receiving the vision of the man beckoning Paul to come to Macedonia, immediately they sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so you see there, they had the dream, they interpreted it as the Holy Spirit guidance, and immediately they went. Immediate obedience to a discerning of the Holy Spirit's guidance in their life. Think how excited Paul would have been at this point clear direction from, the God, from God, an open door, the wind at their back, smooth sailing. I wonder what was on Paul's mind as he crossed that sea from Turkey into Europe. Verse 11 and 12 say, therefore sailing from Troas, we ran a straight co course to Samothrace, 
and the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. You know, after pushing through, getting, meeting a lot of resistance for the past weeks, and we'll get back to that, how wonderful it must have been for Paul at this moment to kind of have the wind at his back, heading for Philippi. Philippi was a great Roman city with a great history. It was a colony of Rome. Many wealthy Romans retired and enjoyed a good life and privileges living there. And you know, I can just imagine Paul on the deck of that ship, looking eagerly towards the horizon, knowing that he was going to a place where God called him, and seeing how God was hastening the way to get there, and wondering what great thing is God going to do. But looking back a few verses, that wasn't the case. For a long time, Paul had been kind of running into a lot of resistance. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 16, we read about the beginning of the missionary journey. And you know that the first, this, this is the second missionary journey. Began with a lot of tension. Paul and Barnabas had split. They had gotten in an argument. Paul didn't want to take John Mark. Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus. Paul decides to take Silas and they head off towards the churches that they had ministered to in their first missionary journey. So it had begun with tension. And then the first few verses talk about how they went through those, those places to Lystra, which is where he was stoned and led for dead. But he finds Timothy, picks Timothy up, and he becomes um, a follower, a, a disciple of Paul, kind of his, uh, his son in the faith. And then verse 6, it says they went through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and I think you're looking at the map now. Um, and it says they were forbidden by the Spirit. The Spirit did not permit them to go into Bithynia. So path, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia. You know, Paul is seeking to be obedient to the will of God. He's seeking God's guidance. And in the midst of, in the process of seeking God's guidance, we see that a lot of, there's a lot of geography that passes by. You know, looking at that map behind me, there's probably several hundred miles that passed as he was trying to go this way and forbidden, trying to go that way and forbidden, finally goes over to Troas, and it's there where he finally hears the voice or sees the vision. A lot of geography, a lot of walking, a lot of time wondering, certainly a lot of maybe frustration, maybe prayer. But to Paul, all of that was a part of discerning the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think about what it is to listen to the Spirit. Paul was able to be that voice of grace because he was able to discern and be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting through this whole passage how Luke is very clear, intentional about how he words the Holy Spirit's guidance of their journey. 
he was very clear about God's leading the apostles through the present voice of the Holy Spirit day to day, moment by moment. This wasn't a boondoggle that Paul was off on his own. This was something that the Holy Spirit was leading them on. And their lives and their paths were directed day by day by the Holy Spirit. And Luke is very clear about this. Not only here, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 29, we read, the Spirit said to Philip, go near the chariot. Acts 10, 19, the Spirit said to Peter, behold, three men are looking for you. Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit said, separate from me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. So Luke intentionally is being very clear that it's the Holy Spirit speaking and guiding and directing. How do we stay? This was key in Paul's ability to be that voice of grace, to be in tune with the Spirit, to be following. And sometimes we limit or we think about listening to the Spirit to a prayer meeting. But how do we stay in the place of hearing and being led by the Spirit of God? I would say first and foremost, and I know you guys know this, but it's good to be reminded. First and foremost, walking in obedience to the will of God. Continuing to do what the Lord has told us to do until we get a new set of instructions. You know, the will of God the general will of God is set down for us right here in the scripture. And our obedience to the general will of God set forth in scripture, how to relate to our husband, how to relate to our wife, how to relate to our children, how to relate to our employer and employee, how to be uh, a godly man or a godly woman, how to relate to God. All of this is part of the general will of God that he's set that, that we need to walk in obedience day by day. And beyond the general will, we have the specific will where God, like he says to Paul and Barnabas, separate me for the work that I have for them. The specific will um, comes in walking in obedience to that. We know the truism. You can't steer a ship that's not moving. You can't steer a parked car. And that's true for Christian life as well. You can't steer a life that is stagnant. And if we're sitting, waiting for God to speak out of the air about the great thing he wants to do through us, but in and of ourselves, we're spiritually stagnant. We're, we're deceiving ourselves. We're, we're not on the way. I love how Genesis 24, verse 27, it's the story of Eleazar, the servant of Abraham, that Abraham asked to go and find a wife for Isaac. And he says, go to my relatives who live in Ur. And so Eleazar, never having been there, sets off. And, you know, the story recounts how he doesn't know. How am I going to find the right woman for Isaac? And the story, you know, he meets uh, Rachel, Rebecca, sorry, at the well, and later, and he realizes that's the woman for, for Isaac. And later, Laban is asking, how did you know? How did you find us? And, and he says this wonderful verse. He says in verse Genesis 24, 27, I, being on the way, the Lord led me. 
I being on the way, the Lord led me. In other words, as I was walking in obedience to my master Abraham, who asked me to, to do this, the Lord led me in that obedience to the wife for my master's son. I being on the way, the Lord led me. That verse has always stuck with me because it really speaks of how God steers us as we first are obedient to walk in his will. And so that's, that's number one, just being in obedience to his will, whether it's his general will or his, per, or his perfect will. The second thing I would say would be staying in his word, allowing God's word to speak to us day by day. You know, we're going through as a church, the anchored. And it's one thing to pick up your Bible every morning. It's good. God's word does not return void. It's good to pick up the word and read it. But we certainly don't want to do it just to say, oh, I checked it. I, I've done my devotions. We need to expectantly pick up our Bible with the idea that God is going to speak to me today through his word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a light to my feet and a lamp unto my path. How else? Listening to godly counsel. Godly people in your life that will give you their honest opinion, even when they know it's not what you want to hear, and, and being willing to listen. I know a lot of people who are willing to listen to counsel, but are very headstrong, and they don't want to do what they say. So it's not only having godly counselors, but it's being willing to listen. How else can we, can we stay in that place of being led by the Spirit? Um, heeding God's directions through circumstances. Circumstances that we encounter in life are sometimes, oftentimes, a way that God shows us his will. I mean, illustrated in this passage. You know, going back to that map, you see you know, Paul had this general idea and he was walking in obedience to God's will to go preach to the Gentiles. He didn't know necessarily where. He tried to go to Asia. It says the Holy Spirit forbid him. He tried to go up to Bithynia. Again, the Holy Spirit stopped him. And I don't know what it looked like physically for the Holy Spirit to forbid him to do that. But I imagine it had something to do with circumstances that he encountered. And from those circumstances, he interpreted that to be, well, the Holy Spirit's not allowing us to go there. But Luke and Paul understood it to be the Holy Spirit speaking, whether it was the circumstances or something else. And lastly, I would say the voice of the Holy Spirit in our heart and the peace that comes when we're in his will. Paul would say in Philippians chapter four, he would say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what? And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. God promises peace. We want answers. We want the roadmap. We want many other assurances. And he doesn't necessarily promise those things, but he does promise peace. And so when we are anxious, and he says, don't be anxious, he says, pray, and God will give you peace. And I've found that when I'm making big decisions, I ultimately am looking for the peace in my heart before I move forward. And that's what he promises. So first and foremost, Paul was able to be that voice of grace because he was able to discern and be obedient 
to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's so critical in our life. It's fundamental in our life as a Christian. Second, Paul was willing to give his full effort even when the ministry was not what he expected it to be. Let's look back at the verses here, looking at verses 13. And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who were there. And a certain woman named Lydia heard us and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. You know, putting ourselves into the narrative, maybe reading a little bit into the story, I imagine that Paul was, was arriving in Philippi with a sense of anticipation. After all, God had given him a vision and there was a man. And so on the Sabbath day, he, it comes and they can't find a synagogue. Typically, remember, Paul, whenever he would go to a new city, he would start by preaching in the synagogue because that's where both Jews and Gentiles would gather to worship God. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue, which means that there weren't at least 10 Jewish men there who worshiped God, who worshiped God to form the synagogue because that's what was needed, 10 worshiping Jews. So there was no synagogue. So what does Paul and his party do? It says they went outside of the city, beside the banks of the river, and they found a group of women who met there to pray. Now, again, reading maybe a little bit into the story, but I think it's likely to be some truth in it, Paul had had a vision of a man in Macedonia beckoning him to come. I'm not sure what his expectation was, but when he arrives there, he doesn't find a man what he sees in front of him here is, is a group of women. And understand that Paul as a Pharisee, before he was a Christian, had many of the Pharisaical prejudices that were ingrained into him. They were part of his DNA. And as a Pharisee before Christ, he would often have prayed, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. Such was the way that Pharisees thought of that, those groups of people. And that's what Paul was. And so that had to be part of, it, of his mindset. And now Paul, knowing he is called of God to preach, finds his audience in this great city to be a small group of women. And what did Paul do? He preached. Not in a great theater or in a great synagogue, not to a great crowd, but to a small group who in a previous life he would have avoided. Talk about expectations not being met. The Bible, the scripture tells us that one of the, name was, one of the women was Lydia, and it says that she was a seller of purple. She was probably a wealthy woman. She was a worshiper of God, but did not have understanding of Christ. And it says she heard the words of Paul and she believed God opened her heart and Paul baptized her in the river. And she invited Paul to come and stay at her house. Now before we move on from this section, I want us to notice three things. The first is Paul himself and his character. Paul was a great man. He was a celebrity in some respects. Accustomed to 
being heard by great crowds. He certainly had traveled a long way. And yet he was humble enough and faithful enough to preach to a small group of women by the banks of a river outside the city. You know, ministry, preaching, evangelism, crusades can be fun, rewarding, certainly fulfilling when there's a big crowd, when there's a great audience, when you can boast of how many people have come forward and responded to your message. But what about if only one person comes forward? What I love about this passage is it shows how Paul was able to be a voice of grace because he ministered to the few with as much zeal and energy as he would have ministered to the many. The second thing I notice here is is that Paul preached, but it says there in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to heed and listen and believe. And this should be a comfort to us because sometimes we think we don't have what it takes to be convincing enough to lead someone to the Lord. But ultimately, it doesn't, certainly having knowledge and having charisma and being convincing help, ultimately, salvation is a work of the Lord. And we simply need to be obedient um, to speak what God has told us to speak. And then the last thing I see here is, is that out of this divine encounter between Paul and his three companions and Lydia and her household, in these very humble circumstances, the church of Philippi was birthed. I think, what if Paul had come upon this group and said, oh, there's only a few people. There's only some women there. Let's go. How many divine appointments do we miss because we think the person in front of us is not important enough? Or there's not as many as we think would be worth our time. Paul was able to be a voice of grace because he was willing to give his full effort even when the ministry was not what he expected it to be. The third thing that we see here is that Paul was able to be a voice of grace because he discerned truth and he resisted temptation when that seemed the logical choice and certainly the easier choice. Verses 16 through 18. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. And the girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. You know, God's, God was working, but as soon as Paul turns up, so does the devil. Satan is working as well in a very deceitful way. As Paul was going to prayer, we see in this narrative a slave girl possessed by a demon met them. And this slave girl had the demonic power of divination. She was able to tell people's fortunes. And she was profitable to her masters in this way. And when she sees, the, the passage tells us, when she sees Paul passing by, 
Look at what she says. She, this woman cries out and says, these men, pointing to Paul and his companions, these men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to us the way of salvation. That's, that's the devil speaking the truth. <laughs> she was speaking the truth. And this went on for several days. And it says Paul became annoyed. And I think, you know, why did Paul allow that to go on for several days? Why didn't he rebuke that Im- immediately? Well, maybe... He was initially unsure of her state. Maybe he was unsure of what to do, how to deal with the situation. But eventually, he got fed up, and it says he turned to her, and he rebuked the demon, and he said, I command you to come out in the name of Jesus. And the spirit came out of her that very hour. You know, again, just looking at this, here's a demon speaking the truth, bringing attention to Paul drawing a crowd. It would seem that this demon-possessed woman was actually helping Paul. And Paul and his co-workers could easily have reasoned. They could have said, she's telling the truth. Why not let her speak? We would never get crowds like this without her. Besides, maybe as she associates with us, maybe eventually she'll see the light. No doubt these thoughts were going through their minds. But it says Paul became annoyed. Why? Well, this story illustrates the deceitful way that Satan works. We know this, although we sometimes forget it. Satan's greatest tricks is not to come out looking all red with a pitchfork and a forked tail where we would immediately recognize him. Satan's greatest trick is to imitate and look as much like God as he can. He imitates the work of God. He imitates the miracles of Jesus. He imitates the ministry of the saints. Remember the story of Janus and Jambres, the two magicians of Pharaoh, who, what did they do? They mimicked the miracles that God did through Moses. They were able to make a snake out of a rod. They were able to turn the, the river blood red. They were able to produce lice. And for, for quite a while, everything that Moses did, they were able to do. But notice, they weren't able to undo what Moses did. They could only copy and make it worse. <laughs> and this is what Paul says. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul says that we shouldn't be surprised at this. So what motive does Satan have in proclaiming the truth of Paul's message here? Well, it makes him credible. It makes people listen and respect him. It takes the spotlight off of what Paul is doing and puts it on on her. And that's the way Satan always works. He throws just enough truth into his lies so that we will listen to him, so that we will believe him and ultimately be led astray. You know, why would it have been dangerous for Paul to accept the testimony of this woman? Well, if Paul would have accepted her testimony, what would have happened when the woman changed her testimony? When she started speaking lies, which would have happened. Started speaking against Paul. 
it would have brought confusion. You see how the devil was trying to infiltrate and ruin the work that God was beginning there in, in Philippi. The people would have become confused. They would have said, Paul, you were accepting her testimony yesterday. Why all of a sudden are you saying she's lying today? It would have caused division. And it certainly would have compromised Paul's authority and the authority of, of Christ himself. And so what does this teach us? It teaches us that we need to be wise to the deceitfulness of Satan. He mixes enough truth into his lies to get us to believe him. And Satan's ministers do the same. And we cannot fall into the temptation of being in league with the devil in any way, even when it seems that he's helping us. The right message from the wrong medium ultimately gives a distorted message. And Jesus, in, in all his time on earth, never accepted the, the testimony of a demon. Every time a demon confirmed Jesus as the Christ or as the Son of God, he rebuked it, he silenced it, he ordered it to leave every single time. And so we see here that Paul was able to be that voice of grace because he discerned truth from lie and he resisted the temptation to compromise when it seemed like the logical and even easier choice. Fourthly, and moving on here, Paul was able to be a voice of grace because he persevered under persecution. From verse 19, it says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and says, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful to receive or observe and the multitude rose together against them, and the magistrate, magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What an amazing story. What an awesome story. But why was Paul in trouble here? Because in freeing the woman of the demon, he had taken away the source of income of the master. Whenever the gospel threatens someone's way of life, there will be opposition. And as Christians, we know the moment that we stand up for what is right, what is just, what is true, we will find opposition. We're experiencing certainly that in our lifetime today. And we shouldn't be surprised. But look at the treatment that these missionaries received. They were seized, it says, and dragged into the market, falsely accused, beaten with rods, put in jail. You know, just a few days ago, I'm, Paul was on the bow of the ship, just so happy that he had received a vision from the Lord. He knew where he was going. I'm pretty sure he wasn't thinking that he was going to be in jail in a few days. But here he was. And the amazing thing is how Paul responds. How did they respond? Well, verse 25 says, they prayed and sang songs. We don't find Paul having a pity party, complaining to God. Somehow in the midst of this trial, Paul always had the faith to know that good could come from his situation. And he was able to pray and praise God in the midst of that darkest night. How? Well, he had Jesus, he had God's word, he had God's promises, and, 
These things in his heart gave him a song. The name of Jesus, the name that had freed this girl from the demon possession, the name which had caused him to be beaten, that name was also a name that put a song in his heart. Friends, being a voice of grace will never be easy. In fact, it may be painful. But if we're trusting him, there will be a song in our heart, and God will use our voice to be a song for others, even when that voice is our own suffering. So Paul was able to be a voice of grace as he persevered under persecution. Fifth and last, as we, as we finish up, Paul was able to be a voice of grace as he was able to recognize opportunities in the midst of hardship. When he could have been having a pity, a pity party, he had the presence of mind to look beyond his own hardship and see the opportunity that God had put in front of him. So many times when we're going through hardship, all we see is our own problem. All we're, we're just looking inward, and we're not looking outward. And Paul was able to be looking outward. It, it says in, in um, verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he fed them. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with his household. So as they were singing, the doors were opened, the chains were loosed, and Paul and Silas had the opportunity to escape. You can imagine them kind of having the idea in their mind, what an answer to prayer, a God-given opportunity. Verse 27, the jailer who had been sleeping wakes up and he sees all the doors open, assumes the prisoners have escaped, and he draws his sword about to kill himself. Verse 28, Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And immediately, the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. An amazing passage when you stop to think about. What was it that brought the jailer to the place of believing in Jesus Christ? He had probably heard of Paul preaching. He'd probably heard of this demon-possessed woman. Certainly, he saw Paul in, in prison. And he saw what had happened to him, and he saw his response to what he was going through. But he saw the attitude of Jesus. Maybe he didn't know Jesus, but the, the attitude of Jesus was in Paul. You know, when Jesus was, in the, in the, was tempted in the wilderness, Satan told him, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. And we don't think of what a temptation that would have been to Christ, knowing all the rejection, the suffering, the death, the wrath of the Father upon himself, knowing all that was ahead of him, and seeing the prospect of accomplishing the will of the Father, reclaiming uh, the kingdom for his Father without having to endure that hardship, 
that would have been tempting for Jesus. And when Jesus was on the cross, one of those who were scorning him said, save yourself. You saved others. Why don't you save yourself? You know, Jesus, in and of himself, didn't have to go to the cross. He had a will. At that instant, he could have summoned the power within him, and he could, and he could have miraculously powered himself off of the cross, but he didn't. He willed himself to endure the suffering and the shame, the wrath, the sin. In fact, in the midst of his agony, he looked over at the dying man on the cross next to him and spoke the loving words that ushered that dying man into the kingdom of heaven. And why? Well, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, it says, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was you and me. The prospect of spending eternity with you and me was Christ's joy. And for that reason, he willed himself to stay on the cross. Jesus stayed on the cross for our sake. You know, Paul could have, at the moment the shackles fell off, he could have, and the doors opened, he could have said, we're out of here, you know, just like Peter did. Silas, let's split. But in his suffering state, with the opportunity to free himself, Paul stays put. And he stayed put because he put God's leading ahead of his personal desires, ahead of his comfort, ahead of his freedom. And God used Paul to save the life of a man and his family. So it was Paul's attitude and his willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ and others that put him in a place to minister. But it was his character and his obedience to the word, of the word that earned him the opportunity to share the good news with the jailer. You know, I would say to this, if we want to be an effective minister of Christ, we need to live the word of, of God. We need to teach it, but we need to live it. People hear what we say, but they watch what we do. And they will see you practice what you preach. And there will come a day when you will earn their trust and they will ask you, what must I do to be saved? The end of the passage, Paul is exonerated. He's asked to leave without shame. Certainly Jesus is glorified. But I want us to conclude this message just with a few thoughts. The great church at Philippi, one of Paul's greatest works, began with a few women Paul met on a riverbank, a slave girl who had been possessed by a demon, and a jailer who very nearly committed suicide. An unlikely beginning for the great Philippian church. And it wouldn't have happened if Paul had not been willing to be that voice of grace, discerning to hear the Holy Spirit, faithful 
to go outside of the city and look for people to preach to. Humble to preach to those few who were gathered there. Wise and courageous to be able to see through and withstand temptation to compromise. Strong to endure intense persecution. And obedient to see the Holy Spirit or to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and not forego the opportunity that was in front of him for the hardship he was going through. Paul's life was a voice of grace. And I want us to go away just with three things here. First, I see in this passage that God's great works often have humble beginnings. And you, really all of us, are some of the many great works of God. The Bible says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he created beforehand that we would walk in them. God created you. You are one of God's great works. And not only did he create you, he created the good works that he wants you to walk in. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, it says, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And as he was faithful to complete that work in Philippi, he's faithful to complete it in us. And we might be here tonight and thinking of ourselves in a very humble, humble way and think, God, what will I ever amount to in your kingdom? Well, just remember that God's great works have humble beginnings. Secondly, Paul endured all of this hardship for just a few hard-won believers. Their salvation came at a great cost. And such was Paul's ability and willingness to be that voice of grace. And such is the love of Christ that there is no cost too great to bring one person into the kingdom of God. Your salvation, my salvation, has come at a great cost. And to be a voice of grace to our family, to our community, to our nation will certainly cost, be a cost to ourselves. And then lastly, and I think to me this is what has always challenged me. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my suffering, and I fill up in my flesh that which is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. In both of these passages, Paul is embracing something that we typically don't want to embrace, and that is suffering. But I want us to remember something. Because we live in a day and age in a country where suffering is really an anathema. It, it's really something that, that you would say a curse is upon you. We avoid it at all costs. But Paul didn't seem to be one that was such. He understood something. He understood that Christ's suffering and only Christ's suffering made, made salvation available to humanity. You see, Christ could have powered himself off the cross. But the cross was the only way 
by which salvation would come. His suffering, his suffering made salvation available to us. You see, Christ was the first voice of grace. And Paul says there, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings and I fill up what is lacking. What is, what is lacking in what Christ has done? Well, you see, and this is where the truth comes home to us as Christians. The truth, the light, the gospel goes out as we, his children, raise our hands and say, Lord, I'm willing to be that voice of grace. I want you to think about, you know, Paul was also a man who had a will. He could have said no to the plan that God had for his life. And I want you to think about what New Testament history would not have happened. What New Testament history, what books would not have been written? What history would not be in the book of Acts? What churches would not have been planted if Paul had said, Lord, I don't want this life that you're calling me to live. I know that God is sovereign and he accomplishes will through willing vessels. And so I'm not saying there wouldn't have been another person. But the fact is, is that Paul agreed. He said, yes, I'm willing. And there were no conditions to that yes. If Paul had not been willing to live the life that God had called him to live, think how much would be missing from the book that we have as our Bible. And the same, you guys, we need, we need to take that and bring it home to our, ourselves. Because sometimes we hold the Apostle Paul up as a superman in the New Testament and we think, well, no one can be like him. But the fact is, we're all called to be a voice of grace. And unfortunately, a lot of times we want to put conditions on what we want our voice to be. We might say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be that voice of grace, but I do have a few conditions. Lord, whatever you're calling me to, it has to be safe. I can't go someplace that I can catch a disease or something, or I hate bugs. I need insurance in place so that I can get out of that place in case there's an insurrection or if it gets, if it gets dangerous or if there's a war. And Lord, will I have a salary along with that? And I'd like to keep my vacations and preserve my current level of living. You know I like to travel, Lord, and you put that desire in my heart. And Lord, I'd like to keep my retirement intact and if these conditions are met, heck yeah, I'll be your voice. Unfortunately, that's in all of our hearts. And I praise the Lord that that doesn't disqualify us immediately. I praise the Lord for his grace and that he does draw us slowly into his will. We're not, certainly not all the Apostle Paul's. But brothers and sisters, we're all called to be voices of grace. And my challenge to us tonight is simply to say, Lord, what voice do you want me to be today? Who are the people around me that need to hear and see and experience 
the love that you have for them and how can I express that through my life? And Lord, I thank you for this wonderful story. I love Acts chapter 16. It's convicting. It teaches us so much. And the Apostle Paul is such a great example to us. Lord, certainly he puts us in the shade. But nonetheless, he is an example. And Lord, I pray that you would call us. We are in a world that is becoming darker. We are having to to make a stand for truth. We are meeting opposition. But Lord, instead of um, scaring us, uh, Lord, I pray that we would have that boldness and that courage, that Holy Spirit anointing to be the voice of grace that you've called us to be where you have called us. And Lord, give us the grace to take away the conditions by which we want to be used. May more and more each day, Lord, those conditions melt away and we just surrender our whole life to you. So thank you, Lord. Bless this congregation as we go home in our homes. May our Sabbath day, Lord, be a day of worship and thinking on you and blessing you and being thankful. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.